Welcome to the Palace Perspective, brought to you by Palace Capital Advisors, a wealth management firm specializing in custom estate, financial, and tax solutions that others often miss. Right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Palace Perspective. I'm Mark Bogar, the Chief Investment Officer here at Palace, and I'll be your host today. It's great to see the turnout we have for today's discussion. A lot going on in the news. I'm thrilled to have as our special guest, Brian Marcus. He's the Managing Director and Portfolio Manager for Global Credit at Carlisle. He also oversees their entire debt platform. And we're going to talk today about the debt ceiling discussions going on in Washington, risk around recessions, and also what the implications are for public and private debt markets. So thank you, Brian, and welcome uh, for joining us here at Palace. Well, thanks so much for having me. A um, lot going on in the world, and uh, happy to be here um, leading into the long holiday weekend. Yes, no, absolutely. Well, we're honored to have you. And Brian joins us uh, by way of Carlisle, as I mentioned. Carlisle is a partner of ours here at Palace. They're a global alternative investment manager, investment manager with $381 billion in assets under management. And they're one of our key sources for alternative investments here at Palace. So it's great that he was able to join us today. So as I mentioned, we're going to hit on the debt ceiling, uh, recession risk, and also what's going on in debt markets. And so why don't we kick off with the debt ceiling? That's been in the news every single day. Talk of U.S. Treasury potentially defaulting on debt, which sounds like it could be catastrophic. But we've also seen periods of discussions like this throughout history. So can you just give us a brief background of what have debt ceiling negotiations been like in the past? Like, what is the debt ceiling? Why is it a problem? And what have the situations been like in the past around this topic? Sure. So I, I guess I would start off with, we've never defaulted on our debt. And I and I do expect the powers that be in Washington to come to some sort of resolution here in the near future. But to get a big step back, ultimately, the debt ceiling um, is a mechanism in the way that Congress, which controls the purse here in the United States, controls spending. Um, and it is a little bit of a, a funkier situation where they have the ability to ring up a bunch of bills and then decide that they don't want to pay them. But that's kind of what we're getting into right now because they have agreed to spend certain things, whether it be on government programs or the military or public works projects or COVID stimulus, et cetera. They have agreed to do that and that's passed in law, but there is also, they have the ability to determine how much debt ultimately does the United States government have outstanding. So that's really what's being discussed right now. Can we raise the limit beyond the 20 some odd trillion dollars that we currently have outstanding? And ultimately the government goes out into the marketplace and issues treasuries through varying different uh, tenors and raises that capital to meet all the needs that Congress is ultimately determining where are we putting that capital. So right now you're into a bit of a sticky situation, obviously, two sides of the aisle with different objectives and they're using this to try and further their agendas. I do think though, um, when push comes to shove over the next week or so, um, cooler heads will prevail and nothing really gets down in Washington until your back's against the wall. And I, I think we're getting pretty close to that point. Right, I think you're right. Definitely backs are getting close to being at the wall now for sure. And it sounds like they're is a potential for a framework that's starting to come together from both sides here. But what does a treasury have at their disposable if it doesn't come through? Like, what is a contingency plan? Are there contingency plans in government in place that if it doesn't come to an agreement, there is some kind of backstop? Yeah, I think what they're thinking about, the one, Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, has been pretty clear that she's going to be running dangerously low on cash um, here. June 1st is sort of her X date, if you will. 
Are there other mechanisms where they delay certain payments in certain areas? Yes. Um, we've never not made payments or made good payment on our payments, whether it be interest or principal on actual treasuries and things outstanding, but the government has a lot of other expenses. Now, you don't want to not pay government employees. You don't want to pay our, not pay our military or our contractors or folks like that, but there are ways that they can potentially delay, but we are really coming down to the, to the end of the rope, if you will, here in terms of how many different tactics can the treasury really undertake to push this out further and further. So we are going to need to Congress to come to some sort of resolution. That's why I think you can't have, and I think we'll get into this probably a little bit and talk about, but so much is benchmarked off of treasuries mm. and you've seen the treasury curve trade off recently um, and you've never seen that. And right now you're seeing one month treasury bills, which traditionally are the safest havens you can have. Those are obligations of the US government to pay back within 30 days, not 30 years, but 30 days. And those are trading in the mid 5% contacts. So you can lend to the US government at 5.5% right now for the next 30 days. Um, that's significantly higher than what the US government today is borrowing at for 30 years. It's inside of 4%. So there, there is a distortion going on in the marketplace. I do think the market and what you're seeing will start to push the politicians to move towards a resolution sooner rather than later. Um, but obviously, nobody wants to make concessions until they're forced in. Right, right. Uh, absolutely. So we are seeing some distortions out there, especially in the near-term treasuries. But it all comes back to the same question of, do we believe there's going to be a resolution or not? We at Palace also believe there's going to be a resolution. But we've also prepared portfolios that, if it's not a near-term resolution, we have ballast in the portfolio uh, that can take you know, cash as an example, other types of um, investment instruments that have high quality that should be able to see see through a downturn. So we're prepared on that side, but we're also base case. We also don't think there's going to be um, an extended issue or a default on U.S. Treasury debt. We just don't think that's going to happen. So we, we tend to agree with that view. Well, I'm glad. So why don't we talk a little bit about recession risk? So that's also been in markets talk. We've, there's been the most anticipated recession here, seemingly on record, that people have talked about a recession coming for quite a long time. Yet you look at corporate earnings, those came in generally better than expected. There's some pocket of weakness here or there, but generally better than expected. GDP still hanging in there. Unemployment still relatively low. So what's your view on the macro economy? Are we going to see a recession? What signposts are you looking for? Or do we need to have recession to get fully through this cycle? Do you have some thoughts there at the top level? Yeah, I think one, we're probably of the view that you're going to see some increased defaults and slowing in certain pockets back half of this year. Um, we are seeing that. And if you see while earnings have been better, you're seeing things like Target or Home Depot or folks like that coming out with earnings that and kind of outlooks that are a little bit more dampened. But when we look at the GDP, when we look at aggregate earnings, the ability to pass through costs and top lines of most businesses, quite strong. And I would say that the consumer has continued to be quite strong. Um, things are slowing, but it, it, we are sort of in a spirit where if we go back 12 months ago and you read 15 sell side research reports, they probably would have all said there's 100% going to be a recession within the next 12 months and we're still not in a recession. So obviously things have adapted and the economy has still continued to perform. And that's why you've seen the Fed continue to raise rates um, because they are very, very focused on bringing inflation under control. Now, I think it's a great question that you asked. Do we need to see a recession to maybe bring inflation back to where we want it to be at that 2% target level that the Fed um, is trying to achieve? And it's difficult to see. We are seeing dampening in inflation expectations. 
I will say if we do have even a foot fault or anything like that on the debt ceiling here, that probably has the uh, equivalent of a one to two hike um, embedded in that, which could probably slow things a bit down more. But you are seeing that these rate increases, they take time to start to flow through. And I think you're starting to see the first effects. So I am optimistic that there is potentially a middle ground, but you are going to see pockets that are going to be more impacted than others, where I would say you might want to be careful um, uh, in those businesses. And when we look at it from our portfolio construction, just we're, we're credit guys. We, we like to lend to businesses and we like to get our money back. Um, being senior secured and moving up in quality in both names as well as where you are in the capital structure. Um, like you said, having dry powder right now, really, really important to take advantage if we do see a recession and a dislocation in the market. Um, those are all the things that we're looking at. But I would say we're pretty constructive on the economy right now. And things have probably been better through the first five or six months on our portfolio company data than we might have expected given the rate hikes that we experienced throughout 2022 into the beginning of this year. Very good. And actually, before I ask my next question, I want to remind our clients that please do send in questions. Any questions you have, we'll ask questions here at the end. So definitely, we've got a great bunch of questions already, but feel free to send in some more, and we'll definitely make sure we get to those at the end of the discussion here. Um, also, you mentioned uh, what's going on in credit markets in terms of you know what happens typically in a recession would be the high-yield credit starts to sell off. Can you give us a sense of where we are, whether it's public markets or private markets, what's the market saying about the potential for a recession? And do you think that's already priced in or we could have you know, much more downside to go in, in high yield public and private markets? So that's a great question. So we traditionally in the public markets or the more liquid markets play in uh, bank loans. Um, so we're, we're large buyers of leveraged loans in the marketplace, which are traditionally senior secured in nature. Um, we will participate in the high yield markets, but I do think that's an area where you could see some dislocation. You obviously saw um, some pretty negative price movements in, across 2022, um, just given the duration in those instruments. Um, I'm not sure you're going to see rates increase so much more. So I think the duration um, exposure has probably run its course to a certain extent, but the spread question and ultimate recovery question, I think that is something that where we do own high yield bonds, it's something that we're being very, very careful around just with that subordinated exposure. Um, I would say we have seen spreads widen though in private markets as well as liquid markets. Um, while they're trading high, new issue is now probably 100 to 150 basis points wide on a spread basis. In addition to the fact that these are floating rate instruments that are participating in a base rate that's gone up 500 basis points over the last year. So companies that were potentially borrowing at six or 7% a year ago are now borrowing at really like 11, 12, 13%. So it's a pretty big movement and it isn't just on a, on a base rate, but also a spread movement, which I think people are starting to incorporate. I need to get compensated for risk as I move it out on the credit spectrum. Um, and I think that is being, I'm not sure we're gonna see huge spread moves absent a hard landing and a big dislocation, which I would say is not, I, I don't wanna step in it if something happened over the next two weeks, but that is not our near-term base case. Right, fair enough. And I should clarify as well, just to make sure, you know, spreads are the additional interest you can earn above the risk-free rate for these bonds that have a little bit more credit risk to them. So that's the extra two, three, four, five percent you can earn. And when times are stressful, that extra income actually rises, but for the current bonds you have, that can negatively impact the bond. So it's very important to track that metric, that spread to see if things are getting worse or getting better. So thank you. Thank you for that, Brian. 
Um, one thing before we leave kind of the macro conversation and get into some more of the asset class is back on the debt ceiling. And have you thought about or read about like invoking the 14th Amendment and what that might mean? And is that a potential solution? I think some things I've read said that's really not very likely uh, to be able to be used, but I'd love to hear your thoughts if that can actually be invoked and what the implications of that could be. Sure. I'm not going to claim to be a constitutional legal expert or scholar here, um, but what, from what I've read, I think that's probably not terribly likely in the really, really near term. Now, if that might be break this glass in case of emergency after the markets go haywire, which I think you wouldn't even need to do that because Congress would come to some sort of resolution with the White House. Hmm. Um, my understanding is it's probably legal. However, it's never been tested. There would be significant challenges with the makeup of the Supreme Court. Who knows if that gets approved or we would have the ability or the government would have the ability to execute upon that. So I, I think that's a low likelihood um, of President Biden invoking the 14th Amendment here. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. That's similar to what I've, what I've read about it. I'm not a constitutional expert either, but yes, it seems like it's difficult to get that done on a legal basis in the very near term and laws may have to change to be able to do that down the road. So I, I tend to agree. Excellent. Thank you. Maybe we can shift gears to talking about bond markets, debt markets broadly, given what's happened well, with the debt ceiling, what's going on in the banking system. Just wanted to go for, through for clients. Well, what is the bond market? What are What is debt? What is, especially on the corporate side, what is the difference between public debt and private debt? Even just on a definitional perspective, can you help us? What is it and what does that provide for companies and what's the difference between public and private? Sure. So I'd say high level, public and private, big difference. Public, generally speaking, will trade um, and there's an active market in it. And public debt could take the form of high yield bonds, which are brought to market by investment banks. Um, well, they will, they will then sell those into the marketplace to individual investors, as well as large institutional investors who want that type of exposure. Um, on the high yield bond market, usually QCIPT, which means that there is, it's tagged and you can trade that over um, E-Trade or you can try, try trade that even institutionally as well as I would say on an individual basis. Leveraged loans, a little bit different. I would say those are public. Those are usually traded kind of over the counter with banks. Um, not as easy access individual loan names as uh, an individual investor, but institutions like us, we are buying and selling those regularly. Those are relatively deep markets where you can see quotes anywhere between three major banks all the way up to 10 major banks, and you can buy and sell hundreds of millions of dollars of these loans on a regular basis. Now, traditionally public market, public debt, whether it be loans or high yield is brought by an investment bank. So someone like a Morgan Stanley or a Goldman Sachs or a JP Morgan um, has a relationship with a business. They want to raise capital. They will underwrite the deal and they will put the deal together and then go out and cobble together investors. Private credit is a bit different and that's where we predominantly play in the private credit universe. Um, we are going out and talking to those borrowers, those companies that need to access capital directly. Um, we have relationships, whether it be via intermediaries or via management teams or via financial sponsors who own businesses who want access to capital. They want certainty of execution and maybe something that's a bit more bespoke. Um, I would say in the liquid markets, a bit more cookie cutter in terms of documentation and the process to bring it to market. But not every company necessarily wants to have 
hundreds of bondholders or they want to have a 30 person or a 30 lender group uh, on their on their bank debt they want to deal with one counterparty or only one two or three counterparties they want to structure something that's a bit more bespoke for their needs they will come to us and private markets will generally speaking structure a solution at a premium um, because we are structuring something that is not as quote-unquote cookie cutter and also it is not as liquid um, is there a market for it could you go out and run a process and find buyers of these instruments, absolutely, but it is not as easy as looking at a screen or calling up um, your sales coverage at a large bank and selling that and settling within a couple of days time. Very good. So then when it comes to actually owning the securities, the public debt, because it has the QSIS, because it's usually tradable, you can get your liquidity every day. Now, and typically then the interest rate you earn on that is relatively lower because it's a much more efficient market, but then on the private side, we have the opportunity anyway to earn higher yields, but we at that cost of liquidity. Is that a simple way to think about it as well? Yeah, I completely agree with that. And we, we describe private credit. We get compensated for illiquidity and complexity. So whether it be structure, um, but it is also really the illiquidity premium um, that's inherent. Very good. And that's how we think about it here at Palace as well, as we use some private credit for clients uh, where it's appropriate to earn that extra yield, but knowing that there is some illiquidity to it. And so it's already thought about in a financial plan that, okay, the illiquidity is fine. And so we can earn some higher yield on that piece. So that is how we use private credit here at Palace. And as you're going through it, can you talk, you touched on it a little bit, but the private credit market has grown so much since the global financial crisis. Um, and you mentioned some good reasons why that might be, but how has it grown too much? How do we know that it hasn't grown too much? How do you feel about the market overall, again, with maybe a backdrop of a potential recession, potential debt issues with the government? Can you talk about the market broadly and the health of the market and where we are today? Sure. So I guess I would start with one. Private credit has grown substantially since the financial crisis and has really grown as a result of risk-taking, moving off banks' balance sheets due to regulatory um, regime changes, if you will and just a response, generally speaking, to the great financial crisis. Risk-weighted assets, the way, what can banks actually lend to? How can much can they hold on their balance sheet? How much equity capital do they need to hold against those loans? So private credit has really helped fill that void where lending activity has moved away from the bank's balance sheets and moved it into folks like us. Now, while we've grown substantially over the last 15 years as an asset class, I would say there's still a huge opportunity set in front of us. And I think there's some data points that that kind of point to that. If we think about private equity and the dry powder out there to go buy businesses by private equity firms, it's about $2.5 trillion currently. If you think about a typical corporate structure, you could have 40 to 50% equity with the remainder in debt. Maybe you go to the banks, but there's still a huge need for private debt to help solve that solution. Two, we're also seeing a real shift in the environment even over the last 12 months. The high yield market issuance is down 80% in 2022 versus 2021. Leverage loan issuance was down 50% in 2022 versus 2021. Banks are continuing to remove themselves given their, the rising rate environment, given pressures that they are receiving, given uncertainty in the more liquid markets about where do deals close. Banks aren't willing to go on risk and say, yep, I can syndicate a deal at 5% or 6% or 7%. They're like, I need flex to say maybe I can sell it at 9 or 10% because I don't know where it's going to clear. So that certainty of execution that I was talking about, a lot of borrowers that may have gone to the regular way syndicated markets or the high yield market are coming to private credit providers like Carlisle and saying, 
we still want to grow our business. We still want to make acquisitions. We still want to build a plan or we want to put in an additional line in our plan. And they're coming to us and they don't want to slow down plans, but they can't get that certainty of execution through the banking channel or the traditional capital markets. So we are providing that certainty. Now, will the pendulum swing a little bit back when I would say markets are more functioning or functioning more as they should in the local market? Sure. But if I think of private credit and public credit and the Venn diagram, I would say they're separate and distinct, call it 15 years ago, and they're slowly overlapping. Do I ever see either one fully taking over the other? No, but I think private credit will continue to encroach, if you will, on the regular way public markets. Gotcha. Very good. Um, and as interest costs have risen here, again, the economy might be slowing down. What can managers do in this space to help de-risk portfolios or what are you doing in portfolios given the environment to potentially um, hedge what's happening out there in, in the macro world? Yeah, I think I touched upon it a little bit. It's one, having dry powder. So we have committed in funds where we have committed capital, we are definitely not overextending right now. We want to make sure that if there is a dislocation, we are at the ready and have locked in capital that we can take advantage of. In fully invested funds, we are looking to delever um, and also free up capacity. And right now, where things are stable, when we start to look at are there certain credits or are there certain instruments that we might want to lighten up on risk, we will do so. And if we want to stay fully invested, we are rotating into what I would say is higher quality or higher up in the capital structure. So maybe not being more mezzanine or junior in a borrower base, first lane senior secure to nature. So even if things go sideways across the board, we're going to be top of the capital structure, make sure we get our money back over time. Two, I would say, and we always do this, but right now even more so, hyper-focus on diversification and not taking any idiosyncratic risk in our portfolios. We want to have diversified portfolios, not just on the position basis, but on a strategy basis. Private credit is not a monolithic asset class. It really spans a wide spectrum of different ways you can lend. You could be lending against aircraft one day, you could be lending against middle market businesses, or you could be lending in bespoke solutions to publicly traded businesses that are several billions of dollars. So the ability to be diversified across those strategies, across industry, across geography is also um, exceptionally important as we think about constructing our portfolios and making sure that we're as robust and as resilient as possible. Yeah, very good. That's definitely an attractive way to do things, at least in my opinion, to be diversified, have that opportunity to move through the different opportunity sets. Uh, what opportunity sets are looking more attractive today given what's happening out there? Sure, so I'd say a huge area for us is what we define as opportunistic credit. And a lot of people define that differently. For us, that's really providing transitional capital to borrowers, um, whether that means they wanna buy out a family member of a business or they wanna expand into a new geography or they wanna acquire a competitor or something that could be in an adjacent market, things like that. Given what I just told you about sort of the high yield markets and the levers loan markets and the banks receding or removing themselves a bit, huge opportunity set for us right now um, to provide sometimes first lane senior secured and get paid what I would call junior capital pricing. So you can make well into the 12, 13, 14, 15% range on an asset level basis without really moving out on the credit risk spectrum. Now, it might be more bespoke in nature. It might be something that we have to tailor for those borrowers. But without taking significant equity or a credit risk, we could have a lot of equity cushion below us, but make really attractive risk-adjusted returns. I would say we are a big per, uh, we are a big player in the structured credit markets. We're the largest CLO manager um, globally, 
We invest in third-party managed CLOs, and for a number of technical factors, we've seen a bit of a dislocation in spreads widening in mezzanine structure, mezzanine securities in those structures. What I mean by mezzanine, what they do is, what these structures do is they buy 150 to 200 loans, and then they raise debt at various different ratings profiles, um, offsetting that, and then there's a residual piece that is effectively the equity, so whatever's left over. We're not buying the equity tranches. We're buying double B and triple B rated securities because of technical reasons. We're getting paid on a triple B basis, something in the 10 to 11% context. And on a double B basis, we're making 13, 14% in today's current environment. When you start looking about historical, what would have to happen to start cracking or impairing those investments? Um, double Bs are talking about multiple years of 6 to 7% defaults. Well, we didn't see really more than one year of that um, in the great financial crisis. Triple Bs, you're talking about effectively the Great Depression for several years. So to get paid double-digit returns, that's a way for us to take a view on a diversified portfolio with managers that we know move up and get paid double-digit returns. That's a pretty attractive opportunity that we can leverage sort of our platform to take advantage of. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense. So the CLOs or collateralized loan obligations that you just went over and we agree here at Palace that, or what I take away as an implication of that is that the cycle we're in now, whether you're a little more negative or a little more positive, is nowhere near what the great financial crisis was. We're not in that situation in any way, shape, or form. And so to the extent you have vehicles like collateralized loan obligations where the default risk is as you just outlined, yet the default risk is a heck of a lot less than it was in the financial crisis, and you're yielding you know, those low double digits, they seem like a very attractive asset class right now. So we, we would tend to agree for sure. Great. Well, why don't we shift to client questions? So I wanted to remind everyone as well to please, uh, please do send your questions in. We definitely have some time to go through a few more, but I have uh, a couple written down already and we can start with those and then, then we'll go with any, any more that come in. Um, it's a slightly different, uh, this may not be in your bailiwick, but I'll ask you anyway. Uh, the U.S. dollar, um, will that remain a reserve currency uh, whether it's the chatter from the, the debt ceiling, China, uh, your, whatever it might be, issues going on in the world, are you concerned that the dollar may lose its reserve status, which would have its implications, right, for interest rates, uh, currencies, et cetera? Yeah, I would, I'm not a rate trader, but I think it is very difficult in the near term, in the immediate term, for the U.S. dollar to lose its status as the reserve currency, um, just in terms of trade, benchmark rates around the globe, amount of dollar-denominated debt outstanding, candidly, with a number of businesses as well as countries globally. Um, the market for oil and commodities, traditionally done in U.S. dollars. So just the need for trade globally, as that continues um, over time, it's difficult to move off the U.S. dollar. Now, do I think we weaken our standing globally and as sort of the end-all be-all of the reserve currencies if we have problems in Washington? Absolutely. So I, that's why I do think it's so important um, for us to reach a resolution. And I think that's why the politicians will eventually come to that conclusion as well. Mm. Um, so I guess a short answer, I think it's very difficult in the near term for USD to lose its status as a reserve. Um, but every chink in the armor over time um, doesn't help. Right. And I, currencies are always a relative game. And I still believe the US dollar and our system of government that backs it up is the best in the world and it's got its issues, but I do still believe like you do that it's going to retain its reserve status uh, for a while. But 
each chink we get is is not positive, right? So let's let's try and stay away from the chinks, but the uh, dollar should stay as reserve currency for for a while, at least in our belief. So we agree with that for sure. Um, how about our clients are always interested in the housing market. So with what's going on in mortgage rates, do you see you know a big fall coming in the housing market? At least near term data, housing transactions are down, but prices are still staying up. Is that the transaction down? Is that a precursor to uh, more of a fall in the housing market, or we're also seeing home builders rally in the market. And the theory has been, well, there's very restricted supply, so they need to do well to build the supply. Uh, do you have either a personal or a house view at, at Carlisle around the housing market? Um, I would say the house view overarching, and we are a large real estate investor in multifamily. Um, there is a structural undersupply of housing here in the United States. Um, so I, I think most people would agree in that, just in terms of like housing needs, um, structural undersupply. Um, also, I would say, given and this is more anecdotal in nature, but the amount of turnover that you've seen, kind of post-COVID, and the low-rate environment that people experienced in 2020, 2021, and being able to put um, mortgages in place at exceptionally low rates, is probably going to hinder sort of people's ability and desire to transition into upsizing homes or moving from home to home. If you had a 2.5% mortgage or 2.75% mortgage that you put in place three years ago and you want to upsize it, now it's not just an upsize with a larger mortgage and a larger equity check that you have to contribute, but now interest rates could be in the 6.5% context. You're seeing a rather substantial increase in what your monthly outlay would be. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot of people staying in their probably houses, which will keep functional supply relatively low, which will probably keep pricing high. I'm not seeing, I would say, in markets and again very anecdotal i'm not a i'm not evaluating the top 50 msas around <laughs> the country um for the housing market but very anecdotal um we saw a lot of houses turn over um throughout covid um and we're not seeing a lot of supply come back on the market so there's still demand that is kind of keeping those prices high now the question is how long can that sustain i don't think mortgage rates are probably going to fall dramatically in the near term. I think you have the 10-year today probably in the high three-eighths. That might be slightly artificially high given what we're seeing with the debt ceiling talks. Um, but I'm not sure you're going to see it back down at 2% or something like that anytime soon. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I've got two more. One is the labor market. That's also been an area that's been, on the economic side, a great area of strength. But when the concern is around inflation, if wage inflation stays high, then the Fed may want to keep rates high. So it's a concern for the market from that standpoint as well. Kind of either way you look at it, you don't want the labor too market too hot or too cold, right? You want it just you want it just right. So, do you see the labor market softening up a bit enough that it's it's going to take the pressure off uh, the wage inflation valve anytime soon? So we haven't seen that in our portfolio data, um, and we have seen. A lot of there's, there's obviously a lot in the headlines, whether it be in tech and or in other areas. I think Meta had some layoffs recently, but it's an exceptionally tight labor market still in a lot of instances. Um, we have businesses that provide ambulatory and emergency room services in rural areas. It's really hard to get nurses and doctors right now, and you have to pay up to incentivize people to kind of work shifts and extra shifts and things like that because there are a lot of opportunities. We are now below 4% on our unemployment rate. That is very, very tight by historical standards. Um, so to achieve the goals of the Fed, and I hate to say this because I hope everybody's employed as well, we're probably going to have to seal a bit of a cooling in the labor market, which will in turn lead to a cooling in the consumer 
the end consumer, which will hopefully lighten inflation and allow us to naturally come down to 2% over time. Yep. Yep. We, we tend to agree with that, but thank, thank you for those thoughts. And then, uh, at least my personal question would be, uh, do you have a favorite streaming show or a book you're reading or, or coming in the Memorial Day weekend, something we can catch up on over the weekend? Uh, favorite streaming show. So I recently watched uh, The Last of Us with my wife. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a little bit darker for a lighter heart. When, I, when I'm traveling and I was traveling last week, I caught up on Ted Lasso. All right. Uh, uh, makes you feel good. <laughs> no, they're all very good. I've definitely uh, watched the Ted Lasso, so those are great. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so maybe if I could wrap this up, thank you for your time, Brian, obviously. Uh, but if I could recap the topics we talked about. So we talked about the debt ceiling in our view, our view, including your view, likely to be resolved. We don't think there's going to be ultimately an issue there, but here at Palace, we are prepared if it's not, but we think generally this rhetoric is going to settle down and the government will come to a resolution because they generally have to do that. Um, on the recession risk side, there's definitely still a chance of recession, but the economy is holding in there. Portfolios here at Palace are prepared. We've got high-quality portfolios, great return on capital, great balance sheet. So we're in good shape if and when a uh, recession happens, but we're, we're prepared for that if that's the case. And then public and private debt markets, they can complement each other in portfolios. We have both four clients today. Uh, the public debt markets are very liquid, very high-quality, uh, but you have a lower uh, return on those or a lower expected return on those where you pair that, complement that with the private markets where you can earn higher returns, but, you know, at the cost of liquidity and a little bit of a credit risk there as well. But when you blend them together in a portfolio, that's where you want to be. I think that's the overriding message of what I take away from our discussion is given all the macro environments, micro, what's going on with companies, you want to be well diversified across client portfolios, which we are today. A nice balanced mix of, of stocks, bonds, private markets, public markets that can help clients achieve their goals in a more consistent fashion through time. So that's definitely what we believe in. So thank you, Brian, again, for your time. Appreciate it. And you have a great weekend. Thanks to you. Enjoy. All right. Take care. Bye. The preceding information is for general educational purposes only. It's not intended to be investment advice and is not specific to any individual's personal situation. Any decision about investing should be undertaken only after careful consideration of the investment's risks, costs, liquidity or lack thereof, and the investor's time frame. Please remember that past performance may not be indicative of future results. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk and there can be no assurance that the future performance of any specific investment, investment strategy, or product referred to directly or indirectly in this newsletter or podcast will be profitable or equal any corresponding indicated historical performance levels. The investment advice is offered through Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, our registered investment advisor.